Amen. Church, you can grab a seat. As you do that, my name is Braden Rodriguez. I'm our student 1825 pastor here at our Delaware campus. It's a pleasure uh, to get to be in front of you this morning and, and sharing God's word with you. If you're a guest this morning, uh, I'd like to offer a warm welcome to you today and point you to a resource that we've curated just for you. It's called lpguest.com. We say this every week. You can pull out your phone, uh, jump on a web browser, or scan one of the QR codes in front of you and go there to lpguest.com. There's a myriad of resources there for you, our message notes, and a few other things there. But the main thing I want to point you to, and maybe it's your first time, second time, or you've just never done this before uh, here at our church and you would like to do that, go to our guest information card. Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're interested in here at our church, and we can get you the most meaningfully uh, connected in the quickest way possible is the way I like to say it, right? You tell us what you're interested in. Maybe you're interested in kids ministry. We can get you put over to the right person, Ann Lown or Laura Hobbs, and they can get you connected as quick as they can to what you're interested in here at LifePoint Church. And here at the bottom of the information portion there, there's a list of ministries, and you get to select one of those. Uh, and what we'll do is we'll donate $5 in your honor, no strings attached, just to say thank you for being here and taking that 60 to 90 seconds to fill out that guest information portion this morning. If you are a guest or maybe you've been out over the last week or so, let me catch you up to where we've been in this five-week series here uh, on Sunday mornings. We're in our last week of this five-week series we've been calling Broken Mirrors. And then we've been essentially talking about this idea how broken people reflect a holy God. Broken people reflect a holy God. And we've been looking as our launching point every week from Hebrews chapter 11, which is often called the hall of faith. We've been looking at all of these people who have faith and then we've been going into the Old Testament uh, and looking at their stories and see, okay, what kind of faith did they have? They're exhibitors of faith, but often, as Kale says uh, in the first week of this series, uh, often we see that it's not necessarily what we would call the hall of faith. It almost looks like the hall of failure, especially when you get back to their original story, that they have faith in God, but yet all at the same time, having faith in God, they're broken, and they mess up, and they slip and fall in some places, but what we see as these broken people are having faith in God, what it's reflecting is this. It is reflecting, yes, their brokenness, but pointing to the one who is unbroken. Their unholiness and their, and their lack of faith sometimes shows God's holiness and his faith all the time. His faithfulness to us throughout our failures and throughout the generations to come. And so as exhibitors of the faith and how uh, we've been gleaning from their lives, we've also seen our core values here at our church. We have five core values. We've done this every week. And so go ahead and raise your hand. We'll do this again the last time. All right, we have gospel identity, which is on the thumb. This is our acronym, GRASP, gospel identity. All right, you're gonna hold your hand up here for a moment. We're gonna talk about this thumb. I want this to really sink in, okay? Gospel identity is the key distinguishing factor of everything in our life especially in this acronym, right? If you have no thumb, it's really hard to do everything else. Yes, you can maybe function a little bit, but you won't function in wholeness and in totality. So you've got your gospel identity. You are made new in Jesus Christ. You've got your reaching priority. You are a missionary, your authentic community, that we're family with one another, not just like family. I think that's a great heresy that we use in the church is that, oh, we're like family. No, we are family. We're infused with the blood of Jesus. And then we've got spiritual intimacy, his ear, what we'll talk about today, and then personal ministries, that we, we're servants, right? And Kale switched it up on us last week. You can put your hand down. Thank you. I hope that sunk in really well that you had your hand up for about 60 seconds. He switched it up on us last week. He switched the P and the S, and we uh, are now at Graps. All right, but what I want to stick with is this idea 
in our original analogy of the hand is that spiritual intimacy rests upon our ring finger. As I was thinking about this idea of spiritual intimacy and, and thinking about that analogy with the hand grasp, it falls upon our ring finger, which I think is interesting to me. And I'm sure someone did this on purpose when coming up with this awesome five-point analogy called grasp and the hand and the thumb and all that. And I, th I feel like maybe this was on purpose. Because when I look at my hand, my left hand, I have a sign of intimacy upon it. I have a wedding ring. And my wife was sitting in the first service, so I'm going to generally point to where she typically sits. I'm not pointing at anyone necessarily here, but as I talk about my wife, I'll point to where she usually sits at the first service. So when I think about spiritual intimacy, or I think about intimacy, when I look upon my ring finger, there's a sign of it, right? You know that I have a relationship, or what we would say a covenant, with a person because I wear this wedding ring. That it is an intimate relationship that I have with my wife. And often in the scriptures, what we find is that the, the, the way it talks about our relationship with God, they use child and father, they use a few different analogies, but one of the main ones that we see is that it is a marriage relationship with God, that he is groom, we are bride, he husband, and we the wife. And so we set, and we think about spiritual intimacy, and we look at our finger, and we say, there's a marriage between us and God, that we're his, and he as ours. I also think about this, this fact of the matter is that when I wear my ring, it shows people I'm married, right? It shows others that I'm in a covenant relationship with my wife, but what it doesn't show is how you know I love her, right? Just looking at a wedding ring on my finger, you don't know how I love my wife just because I have a shiny gold ring on. No, how do you know that I love her? It's by action. Right? It's things that I do in service to her, and we'll get there in just a moment, but it's action towards her. So similarly, when we think about our Christian walk, how do we know that someone's married to God? Well, they could wear the ring of Christianity and say they're Christian all day, but how do you know that someone loves God? Well, it's an action. And not that you can save yourself, not that there's actions to perform to make God love you back. No, it is all initiated by him first. And it is a re overflowing response of our gospel identity towards him that once we are changed, we show an action love back towards him. But that is the idea, is that it's an action. If you just wear the ring of Christianity, but there was nothing to follow after it, the Bible says they'll know you by their fruits. That's what Jesus says. If you're following God, they'll know because there is a fruitful life. There's action produced out of it. What are some actions to know that I love my wife that you can tangibly see? I talk with her. I spend time with her. I serve her. I get to know her even still to this day. There are new things that I learn about my wife every once in a while. I sit with her. I wake up with her. I go to bed with her unless she's very sick and has a fever, then I'm going to go sleep on the couch, okay? Because I'm not trying to get that sickness. But I serve her and lovingly from a distance. I eat dinner and all of these meals with her. One of my favorites, I get, I get to ride in the truck with her, right? We get to just sit and be with one another on our, um, we grew up in a small town in Mississippi, very similar to Delaware, um, but not as much fun. There was not a lot of stuff to do in, uh, you know, kind of suburbia, Mississippi. And uh, one of our first dates, we go out with this other couple, and we go to this really awesome place for dinner. My wife had never had guacamole before. She had it there, and she fell in love with it, praise God, because uh, it's one of my favorite foods. And so she and I, we go on this double date, and we watch this couple um, argue for almost the entirety of the time. And then what we did was we got in my car, 
And we just drove because one and everything in Mississippi is closed after like eight o'clock, right? So we just drive. We just spend time with one another, get to know one another, talk with one another. We ride in the car together. Ultimately, I could sum it up in this way. We walk through life together. In similar fashion, if we're married to God, what would it look like in action to, to show others, hey, we, we love the Lord. We're in this intimate relationship with God. I think it's very similar. We talk with him, spend time with him, serve him, get to know him, sit with him, wake up with him, go to bed with him, eat with him, ride in the car with him. And in summary, we walk with God. This is actually a retelling of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. It's this old Hebrew text that's often called the Shema. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. And as a result of that love in God and loving God, what we see play out is the following verses. He says, all right, so when you wake up, wake up with God. When you go to bed, go to bed with God. Teach your kids about it when you're walking by the way and you're sitting down. And when you're going to sleep and when you're waking up, bind it on your hand, bind it on your mind, which is this picture of action and thought. We love God in every aspect of our life and we point to this intimate relationship with him and our life screams, God, I just want to be with you. I want to walk with you. That is the picture of intimacy. God, I just want more. I just want to be with you. I want to walk with you. We're going to start in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, and we'll jump pretty swiftly to Genesis chapter 4 and 5. So you can either go to Hebrews chapter 11 to start with me, or you can go ahead and just get to Hebrew, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 4 and verse 5. But before we do that, let's pray before we read the word of God. Father, we know that the grass withers and the flower fades, and yet you say your word stands forever. Thank you. Today, as we speak uh, upon your word and we read through your word, would you till up the soils of our hearts and would you let the seed of your word take deep root and would it produce 30, 60, and 100 fold as your word is accorded. Father, what we know not, would you teach us and what we are not, would you make us what we have not, would you give us all for the sake of your son, who is our savior. Amen. Genesis, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11, verses five and six. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. In verse 6 it says, and without faith it is impossible to please him. Talking about God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is the very quick telling of Enoch's story, and it's in Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. Uh, it's about one verse, technically. It only talks about Enoch and that kind of one verse, and then it talks about our faith as a result. And then you flip to Genesis chapter 5, and we get the longer version of his story, which is about three verses, 21 through, I think, 22 or 23 of Genesis chapter 5. It's a very short story. We don't get a lot of context about Enoch, other than that, what it says is that he believed in God, he loved God, he had faith in God, and it pleased God, and he walked with God so near, is what it's going to say in Genesis 5, he walked with God, that God took him. And I don't know exactly what that means. He doesn't see death, God takes him. Some commentators have different ideas about what that means. Does God physically move his location to where nobody can find him until the, his dying day? Or does God immediately pull him up to heaven and, and he gets to be in, in glory with God and immortality forever? I tend to think that's what it is. Right, That God has now taken him to be with him for all of eternity. And what we see as a result of that, it is because of faith. If we read here, it says, 
it's, he doesn't see death, but then we get to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. It immediately says that all of these people before in Hebrews chapter 11 die. So what does it mean that Enoch dies, but he doesn't see death? I think this is what it means. And maybe you should definitely read the scriptures, not maybe. You should definitely read the scriptures and form an opinion here. But in Hebrews eleven thirteen, 13, it says all of these men and women died, but somehow Enoch doesn't see death. Oftentimes in our life, pain of death comes. It's painful. And in this moment, what I believe happens is that he gets taken to God and he doesn't taste the pain and the pang of death, but is brought into glory and made a new body and doesn't have to taste the pangs of death, though died. And he gets to be with God forever. This is a beautiful promise of what happens in the Christian life as we walk with God, but he's taken. And it's all by faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. It says, you must believe that he exists. It all goes back to gospel identity. That you have no hope for intimate relationship with a holy God. You have no hope of relationship if you haven't started one. Right? You can't have an intimate relationship if there's no steps and actions that have been taken. Meaning, if you don't have faith in him, nothing can overflow. Well, how do I start a relationship with God? How do I have faith in God? What must I believe? What must I do? One, there's no doing on your part. God has done all to come to you. We just said in a moment ago that it is our life that screams out, God, I want to walk with you. But he comes down and he says, no, I want to walk with you. No actions you must perform to earn my love. No, I have loved you, so I have come down. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, steps out of holy perfection. God of eternity, who's made all things and hold all things together, comes down and he lives a perfect life in our place. It says in the scriptures that all have sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard which God has set before us. And the wages of that sin is death. We have earned separation from God for all of eternity because we are unholy. And you're like, whoa, dude, I'm not that bad. It says if you've broken one commandment of God, you're liable to it all. If you've told one little white lie in your entirety of your life, if that was the only sin you ever had, it was, it's good enough to separate you from the most holy of holy God. And so he says, I come and I do it in your place. Jesus comes, he lives a perfect life. He lives uh, 33 years fulfilling all 613 Levitical laws, uh, fulfilling all the prophets and all the history and all of the genealogies. And here he comes and he dies on a cross bearing the weight of sin and shame upon himself so that we don't have to. And he goes to a cross and he raises three days later with the keys of hell, death, and the grave. He says, oh, victory, where's your sting? Oh, death, where, or excuse me, oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, hell, where's your victory? He holds the keys. Three days later, he rises again. Why? So we might have new life in him. Going back to our gospel identity, we can be made new in Jesus. And we get to know him in a real relationship. And it says he has ascended to the right hand of the Father where what he's doing in eternity is intermediating on our behalf. And he's, it says making us a room in the house. Because one day a part of the gospel message is this, is he will return. And just as Enoch was taken to him, we also will be taken to our heavenly Father and be in immortality and goodness for the rest of our eternity. It is all about gospel identity. There is no hope for spiritual intimacy if there is no relationship with God. The way we have relationship with God is believing in the work of Jesus on the cross, that he died, bore our sins in our place, went to the grave, and got back up three days later. And it says, if you believe in that message and you confess that Jesus is the Lord of your life, not my show anymore, God, your show, not my passions, but your passions, it says you will be saved. 
And this is the start of relationship with God. You ready? The main point of the sermon today is this. One point, all sermon, God wants to walk with you. That's what he wants. He desires you. God wants to walk with you. We flip to Genesis chapter 4. We swiftly read Genesis 4, 1, or excuse me, 17 through 26. Before I do that, let me tell you what happens in verses 1 through 16 in Genesis 4. Cain kills Abel, right? Cain talked about it a few weeks ago. Abel offers a, God, a sacrifice to God. It's acceptable. Cain does not. And so out of jealousy, envy, he kills his brother, Abel. And then we pick up in Cain's family lineage in verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. This is not the Enoch we're talking about in Hebrews chapter 11, by the way. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And Enoch was uh, born Erod. Erod fathered Mahujala. Mahujala fathered Methushela. Methushela fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other Zilla. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and livestock. And his brother was named Jubal. By the way, very confusing, moms, when you just one letter off with names. I'm just going to throw that out there. It's very confusing. It's hard to get together. He was the father of all those who play lyre and pipe. But Zillah, the other wife, bore Tubal Cain, and he was the forager of instruments of bronze and iron. Very neat job. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge, his great-great-grandfather's revenge, was sevenfold, Lamech's is 77. And there's a shift here in a moment, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again. And they bore a son. And his name was Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, not the guy that we're talking about in Hebrews 11. And at the time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. In very swift action, let me point out some key figures in Genesis chapter 4. You've got Cain, who has Enoch, who has Erod, who has Mahujael, who has Methuselah, who has Lamech. And what we see in this family lineage is corruption and death. Great, great, great granddaddy Cain kills his brother. And what we see is from generation to generation, passed down all the way to Lamech, is that he also will kill a young man. I think what we're seeing in Genesis chapter 4, because immediately after in Genesis chapter 5, and really right before it, is that God, the writer, uh, writing through Moses, is saying, hey, there's a difference between these two families and these two sons. Cain, evil, follows after his own passions and desires. But check out this new family line. There was once this son named Abel, but Adam knew his wife again. And he had a son named Seth. And Seth has Enosh. We get to verse 1 of chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in his likeness. By the way, this is a very key phrase in the early chapters of Genesis. God made man in his likeness or image. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and he named them man when they were created. And when Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. And after his image, he named him Seth. And the days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, was 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Adam were 930 years and he died. All right, buckle up because we're about to get in a lot of genealogy and numbers. You ready? And Seth, in verse 6, had lived 105 years and he fathered Enosh. In summary, Enosh lives a long time, has some more kids, dies. Verse 9, Enosh lived 90 years and fathered Kenan. Lived for a long time, had more kids, and he died. Kenan lived 70 years and had Mahaliel. 
had some more kids, lived a long time, died. Mahalia lived 65 years and fathered Jared. Lived a long time, had more kids, died. Verse 18, Jared lived 162 years. He fathered Enoch. Jared lived, had some more kids, died. Verse 21, the subject matter of which we've been curious the whole time in this genealogy. When Enoch had lived 65 years and fathered Methuselah, not Shela, different, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and he had more sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, second time he says it. And then he was not for God took him. Methuselah lived 187 years, fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived and he fathered Lamech 782 years. He had other sons and daughters and thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. This is the oldest man in the recorded scriptures that ever lived. And when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and his name was Noah. And out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and he had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and Noah was 500 and Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We get some key figures here. And actually very similar in name, right? In the other lineage in Genesis 4, we've got an Enoch, a Methuselah, and a Lamech. But then we get this Genesis chapter 5, and what we see is a new character on the scene. Methuselah, the oldest man to ever live. Presumably the reason is such, is that he followed in the footsteps of Adam. And he had relationship with God. Oftentimes what we see in the scripture are those who live the longest, are those who are the nearest to God, who walk with God. God, and then you get Lamech, who's 777 year old. Uh, I don't get into the whole numerology thing. I don't necessarily think every number means something under every rock, right? You flip it over, it's, oh, this is like a nice little thing. But I do think it's interesting that God lets him live 777 years, this number of perfection, likely also walking with God. We've got Enoch, who it very clearly says walks with God, and eventually gets to Noah. And it said Noah was 500 and he had a couple of kids. You get to Genesis chapter six and the first man who was ever called righteous is Noah. And it also says of Noah that he walks with God and he was blameless in his generation. He was a righteous, blameless, just man. What we see in this family lineage is the opposite. The first thing that we see is this family lineage that leads to no good and follows their own passions. What we get here in this Genesis chapter five is a bunch of men who walk with God, who are in deep relationship with God. And this phrase, the word walk with God in the Hebrew, halak eith Elohim, eith, this word with that we use, it has a few meanings in our English definitions. Near, together with, in relationship with, near in proximity or place, or with by possession. So it says, as these men walked with eighth God, they were near in distance, in proximity. There was relationship connotations. They were owning, they were, he is our God, we his people. There's this possession. I am with God. It's a relationship. Faith, we talk about walking with. Faith is not just the starting point, 
right? Because it says without faith, it's impossible to please God. It is the starting point, but it's not just the starting point to the walk with God. It's ongoing, right? I, I think about when I talk with students and they talk about all of the, you know, people they're trying to suit and date and, you know, court or whatever. They're like, yeah, we went on a walk. We went on a walk together. If, if they were to look at the other person and say, hey, let's go for a walk, what they don't mean is this, let's take one step. And I'm like, all right, that was nice. And then we'll, we'll go on our separate ways. No, when they say, hey, let's go for a walk, it denotes distance, time. And oftentimes what we see is there's no determinative amount of time or distance that they're going to go. There's not necessarily a point A to point B plan. They don't even really have a path planned out. They just walk. Parents, that's what your kids are doing whenever they say they're going for a walk. Hopefully, maybe you remember back to your days when you asked your spouse to go for a walk for the first time. I think about when my wife and I, we go downtown, right? We might start at Coffeeology because, you know, we need something warm in this 25 degree weather. Nine months out of Ohio, you know, weather is like 25 or 35 degrees, right? So we need something to walk and keep us warm. And so we start at Coffeeology and then the path is then determined typically by which green crosswalk we have, right? We don't necessarily lay out the path ahead of us. It's like, all right, we're going to go do this, 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 and this. No, let's just go. We'll pander around downtown for a little bit. We'll take this crosswalk because it's here. Maybe we'll take that crosswalk because it's there. Maybe we'll stop by a store because we see something nice and flashy on the inside and let's go in there. Maybe, hey, now we're hungry, so let's stop by Fresh Start and let's get a you know pastry or let's stop over here at Opa for dinner and there's just... No set path, no set time. It's a walk. That's the relationship. And I can't help but to think that's what God wants to do with us. He's, he's saying, hey, don't just take one step. Don't try to plan out the path in which you think we're going to take. Don't set a time frame. All right, we're, right, we're going to walk for 30 minutes, and then it'll be a nice uh, departure for both of us. And then we'll, No. Let's just walk. Maybe let's stop and sit on this bench and talk for a little while. Maybe let's sit and eat together. Maybe let's, let's, let's take this side street and come back around. I can't help but to think that's what God wants with us. Walk with us. There's a few ways in which we talk about spiritual intimacy at our church. There's some ways in which we get to experience God intimately. If you've ever been to our Discovering Life class, which is about membership, we talk at length about all of our um, core values here at our church. And when we talk about spiritual intimacy, we use uh, Acts 2.42 as a way to reference a few ways to be spiritually intimate with God. I want to share those with you. These are actually been the things that, um, as I've been doing ministry over the last almost nine years, that this has kind of been my like philosophy of ministry and the philosophy of like my personal walk with Jesus. It said in Acts 2.42, they, talking about the earliest Christians, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, prayer, breaking of bread, and uh, the fellowship. So the first, apostles' teachings. It is, what did the apostles teach? They taught the very word of God. If you've heard me preach before, you've heard me say this. This Bible is not special just because it has holy written on the side. It's not special because it has this nice leather binding and that is expensive or this nice fabric ribbon or this nice, you know, gold shiny stuff on the edge of the paper. It's not special for those reasons. That makes it cool. It's special because it's the very breath of God sitting upon these pages. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says this, for all scripture is breathed out by God. The very breath in which God breathed into man to make him a living creature sits upon these pages. And we get to know God in intimate relationship when we come here and we read about his nature and his character and his love and what he thinks about us. 
That's what we find in the scriptures is what he says about himself and then what he thinks towards us. It is special because it's his very breath. And John Piper, he's a pastor. He's uh, in his late 70s. He says it this way. If we don't meet God here, we have no hope of meeting him at all. Because this is his revealed revelation to us. He wrote it for us so that we get to know him in deep relationship. It's a love letter towards us. You know what happens in a love letter? You get one in high school or middle school, right? You take it home. You don't just read it once and can it. No, you read it over and over and over and over. And it's like, what did she mean when she said this? She said, I have nice hair. How did my hair look that day, right? Like, God's love letter towards us. And you know what's going to happen is I'm going to like look at my best friend. I'm going to be like, Mark, come here, man. What did she mean? when she, Dude, look at this. Look at what she said. Read it over and over. Look at someone else and say, hey, come help me figure out what she means when she says, meet me at 702 after school. And it's like, should I meet her at 702 then? Like, what do I do? It's God's love letter towards us. And he writes very specifically, and he wants to have relationship with us. We have the second is prayer. We have, this is the way David Mathis, he writes a book on spiritual disciplines called Habits of Grace. It's a very good book. Kale didn't like it all that much. But I love the way that he talks about prayer in that book. He says, we have God's ear. So you have a good recommendation, bad recommendation, take it or leave it, right? But I love the way he talks about prayer. He says, we have God's ear. Psalm 116 verse 2 says this, because God bends down to listen to us, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. I like the way the ESV says it a little bit better, but we don't use this phrase often. Because God has inclined his ear. What is that picture? Because God has inclined his ear. It's this picture of him cupping his hands to his ear and getting up out of his heavenly lazy boy and leaning in deep. God getting up out of his throne of glory, bending down and leaning in to listen. You have his ear. It's a way to experience intimacy with God. The third is this, is the breaking of bread. We would, would say that's the, uh, the imagery of the Lord's Supper, taking of communion. We do that here once a month. It's one of my favorite Sundays. I love taking the Lord's Supper, but it's more than just actually taking the bread and the cup. It's representative. When we say it every time we take the Lord's Supper, it's Jesus' body broken for us. It's his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins of many, is what the the gospels will say. And so it's not just the physical taking of the Lord's Supper, it's a life devoted to the gospel. It's a life that remembers and preaches to themselves daily, oh, the grace and the mercy and the justice and the love of God, that he would break his body and pour out his blood for me. Let me tell you what, you want to experience intimacy with God, preach the self Uh, Preach yourself the gospel daily. Preach it in here. Know that you are justified, forgiven, washed, made new, pure, and whole, all because of God's work on the cross. You experience God in intimacy. It also says in the scriptures, though, it's not just a remembrance of what Jesus does for us. It's a proclamation of his death until he returns. Guess what? There's an evangelical portion to the taking of the Lord's Supper, and it is go. Tell everyone and anyone this good news that Jesus broke his body and poured out his blood for you. A devotion to a gospel life is that of being evangelistic. Let me tell you what, when you tell someone else about the good news of Jesus Christ, you will experience intimacy with God, I promise, in ways that you may have never done if you've never done it. The last is this, is fellowship. And I left my time, I left my time a little bit longer here. Fellowship is being connected to the body of the church. I heard a worship leader say this uh, once, uh, and he talks about the, this image of a guitar. 
He said, you got God as the head. We, uh, us singularly, are the neck. And then the body is the church, the rest of the corporate believers in Jesus Christ. He says, when you're connected to Jesus, right? There's some tuning that happens, right? There's some frets at the, or whatever they call them, tuners at the top, not frets. They tune and the strings go up and down, right? And if you're just a person connected to Jesus, there's some, some tuning that happens, right? But there's no tension, there's no music that could be made. But then on the other side, if you're just the neck of a guitar connected to the body of a guitar, if you're just a person connected to a group of people, right? The strings are connected on one end, but again, there's no tension. But when you put it all together, the head of the body of the guitar, Jesus, us, the neck, the body, the church, and it's all connected. There's full tension. There's tuning that can happen. And then you put it in the hands of Wes Mosley and beautiful music begins to come about. We are not fulfilling God's intended design if we're not connected to the head of the body of the church, Jesus Christ, and we're not connected to the body of the church. We're not living in full intimacy that God wants for us. Again, if you're connected to Jesus, maybe he can tweak some things up top. No music happens. And so, what does that mean? We connect with one another. We experience intimacy with God when we, as the church, are connected Together, Paul would say each one of us is uniquely gifted by God for the mutual upbuilding of one another. Paul would look at the church at Rome and he'd say, I long to be with you so that I can be encouraged by you. Not, hey, I'm coming with my gift of teaching and, and all of this stuff to encourage you. No, no, no. I'm coming because I want to be encouraged by you. When the church gets together, we're all, like we said in Genesis, uniquely made in the image of God. And the New Testament says we've been given gifts to uplift and build up one another. When we get together, we experience the very relationship with God because of our brothers and sisters. Intimate relationship. There's a few ways in which you can do that. We've set up some lanes here at our church, life groups, life teams, everything, right? Everything here, serving, being in a life group, all of that, that helps, but it's not the only ways. Right, meeting with one another regularly outside uh, in your homes or at dinner or all of those things. There's many ways to connect with the church. I implore you, find one. Because without it, you won't experience all that God has for you. What we're going to do here in just a moment is we're going to sing this new song for, for many of you. It's called Walk With You. It's a song that we sing in our student ministry. We don't actually sing all the same songs that we do on Sunday morning at our student ministry. We have our worship pastor, uh, Wesley, and a few of our other worship leaders and different people on our team that curate a, a list of music just for our students on Sunday nights. And one of the songs that we sing is Walk With You. And I love this song, and I couldn't think of a better way to end this service than with singing that song because it's a prayer. The, the lyrics go like this, the chorus. He says, God, I want to walk with you talk with you, spend all my days with you. Where you are, Lord, is where I want to be. You're always listening and leading me and walking right next to me. I know that you're someone I can trust. Jesus, my friend, and my God. It's a prayer, and hopefully our heart's desire is, God, I want to walk with you. In the verses of the song, it's kind of God's image. He's essentially saying, no, I, walk, I want to walk with you too. It's a beautiful so I'm going to encourage you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a few moments. Just think with me, pray. This picture of walking with God, maybe you've been following Jesus for quite some time and maybe you feel like you're missing out on something. Maybe you feel like your intimacy with God has not been awesome. Maybe you've never read your Bible before. Maybe you don't pray 
but that one time a day over those meals. Maybe you're not connected to the church in the way that you feel like the scriptures is calling you to connect. Maybe you're not devoting your life in remembrance of the gospel in your own life and proclaiming it to others. Maybe God is challenging you to, to walk with him in a certain way. I would ask that you would consider taking those steps where God's leading you. But maybe you're here this morning. You say, I've never even taken the first step, Braden. You say, faith, that's what pleases God. Relationship, how do I have it? We talked about it earlier. It's knowing you're broken, but knowing that God has come to fix it. That you believe he died on the cross and that he rose from the dead. And you say, God, not my passions anymore, but yours. You run it. And I want to walk with you. God, may we move in the ways which you call us. Father, let us walk with you. Let this be the cry of our heart. As we sing this song, feel free to stand. Feel free to stay seated. Feel free to, to kneel whatever you need to do. Maybe you need to talk with one of our staff members, guest uh, central people. Maybe you need to talk with someone who brought you. I encourage you, just move the way you feel led.